If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You ever take a certain subject in school and you found that you really didn't understand a lot of the concepts that were being taught? Like you were confused. Someone had to stop and walk you through it step by step for you to see clearly what it is that was missed. You see, the unfortunate thing is for many of us, one of the problems that we find all the time in our Christian life is that there are certain lessons that are to be learned and we tend to forget. Even those of us that have walked with the Lord for any amount of time tend to neglect the very things that Scripture teaches us. This morning we're going to be looking at the lessons of grace. We're looking at number one, grace reaches, verse 11. Number two, grace teaches, verse 12. And number three, grace motivates, verses 13 and 14. So number one, grace reaches, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Building on what Paul has just mentioned about a different pattern of life, believers are to exemplify, Paul brings it back to reality that grace is what teaches us things And it doesn't matter where we've come from, culturally speaking. Grace teaches us the same things whether or not we're one nation or another. It is a universal language of God. And we're talking about divine grace. It doesn't matter if a person's not from a Jewish descent, grace reaches them as well. Which is essentially what Paul is getting at here. God's grace is what brings salvation. It is not something we earn of our own will. It's not something that we come up with. God's grace is not to be mixed with works because grace is no longer grace if that is the case. You can't mix in works with salvation else it destroys grace. The unmerited favor from God which is beneficial to us by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. You see, you and I may desire to save ourselves, but it is only grace which comes from God Himself that brings new life and rescues us from eternal damnation. The grace of God, by the way, though, is very different from the grace of man. In that, man's grace depends on how many times someone feels a certain way about someone else. It's determined by man's feeling at the time. Whenever you use the phrase, in someone's good graces, it's usually based on how that person's feeling at that time, is it not? So whenever we use that, we go, yeah, today's a good day to approach. Or, no, it's not a good day to approach. They're not feeling it today. And essentially what ends up happening is, based on a feeling, a person will determine favor to somebody else. The difference between our view of grace and God's is that divine grace is established for all due to the once-for-all payment of the Son. It's so divine that we so easily forget when we quote verses describing this grace. In fact, if you were to look back in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, we read the following. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it says this, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves 
in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everything that you see in this chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, especially working through verse 8, is to show you that grace makes you alive. You were once spiritually dead. Grace awakened you and I, for those of us that know Christ. Grace raises us up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. It gives us faith that is not of our own doing. Literally says, it's not of your own doing. And determines that the good works that God has laid out for you to accomplish, He will in your life. They're ordained. They will happen. Grace is that amazing grace that is undeserved. And it's all because of the blood of Christ and His sacrifice. You see, most theologians will argue for a difference between what we would call common grace and saving grace. Common grace is offered to everyone that lives. It is literally the very breath that you and I breathe. The rain that comes, the snow, the sun, the ability to live, laugh, love, for lack of a better phrase. It really is backed up by verses like Matthew 5, 45, which says, He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, God has a common grace for all people on this earth. His saving grace reaches further to His own. Saving grace is what Paul is referring to when he mentions grace in Ephesians chapter 2, and back in Titus 2 as well. Saving grace is divine grace which saves us from the wrath to come. It's the grace that covers a sinner in the holiness of Christ. It's the grace that makes a sinner a saint in the eyes of God. A horrible wretch like us becomes a saint before God. That's what grace does. You don't deserve any of the good in your life, believer. And that is precisely still because God extends common grace to all of His creation. But for the believer, there is another level that many times we don't realize. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are actually stuck on common grace a lot. Many Christians are just thankful that they can eat something that day, that they can breathe that day. And there are greater treasures that are waiting for those that understand the saving grace of God. But many Christians are happy with common grace because they get to just participate with the rest of humanity on certain things. God calls us to more. Grace calls us to more than that. There's a removal of guilt before God positionally, not just experientially. The unfortunate thing is most of Christendom lives in experience rather than what Scripture says, which is one of the reasons why when we have these frustrations in life, we think, if only my experience were like someone else's, it would be better. 
That's not exactly the case. If you read throughout Scripture and you were to be honest with yourself, would you really like the experiences of Joseph? Would you really want to go through those lessons? Oh, we praise him, right? We go back and read it like, man, this is amazing. Look at what God did in this person's life. Is that something you'd want to experience? How about people like Peter? Oh, you know, he was one of the top three friends of Christ. Sure. You realize what Peter went through? A lot of foot and mouth called out by Jesus himself. How would you like that one? How would you like to be living life around Jesus and he tells you and points out all the times you probably shouldn't have said something? Think about it for a moment. There are many of these experiences we don't really take in and see personally. You see, the unfortunate truth is that so many followers of Christ experientially feel guilty full of anxiety, fearful when they stand justified and righteous due to the merits of Christ. The reason grace is so amazing is that because it makes truly what's worthless worthy. No, you're not worthy of grace. That's what makes grace what it is. None of us are worthy of it. If you're attempting, if you're attempting to literally live life Trying to make yourself worthy, you're going to fail. You and I are going to fail. And if you're attempting to live the Christian life out of dread, your premise is wrong to begin with. The wrath of God was poured out on His Son. It's not on you and me. Yes, there's chastening. There are things to be wary of as far as the chastening hand of God the Father. But your dread that you had before you came to Christ is not something you should have. It doesn't mean that there may not be serious chastening should you fall out. But you will never fall out of favor with God because that's not yours to be a qualifier. You're not the one that's qualified to begin with on that. That was all based on Christ and His performance, not yours. You're qualified because of what Jesus did, not because of what you have done, are doing, or going to do. doesn't matter which category you want to put it in. You're not qualified on your past, your present, or your future. That was once for all settled by what Jesus did on the cross for you. That is why the process of discipleship is so important. And why we all must be taught. Number two, grace teaches. Verse 12. Teaching us... That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see, Paul is going back and recapping what he had just laid out, which is the importance of godly living in the local church. This grace is what teaches us these things. And the way that we're taught is through those that have matured themselves in those areas that we ourselves need to be disciplined. This is so important to understand how Paul lays this out. He starts off by saying, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's something that we are to be taught by grace to do right off the bat. It comes in the form of others in our lives that come alongside us and say, hey, you know what? Here's something off in your life. Here's what God's word says. Let me help you with that. Not in a condescending, judgmental way, but in a, hey, brother, sister, listen, here's some things you really need to pay attention to. It's going to hurt you. I know you've trusted Jesus, but because you've trusted Jesus, there are things that he expects from us. 
Teaching us is in reference to the redeemed. Grace teaches God's children differently than the rest of the world. The us there is those that are his own. It's not everybody. God does not zap any of us with instant abilities to automatically know how to push back against wickedness and sin in our culture. Not a single one of us has an automatic textbook answer to every problem in our culture. It's to be something we're taught. In fact, Spurgeon once said, and I, and I really have to say this is an incredible statement. For those of us that work with people, pay attention to what he says here. The most difficult part of the training of young men is not to put the right thing into them, but to get the wrong thing out of them. We start with the wrong premise many times. We just think if we just swap to something that's a little better, it'll take care of everything. There's a cutoff that needs to happen with certain things that are wicked before a put-on can be put in place. There's food for thought for those of us that want to argue. Just think positive thoughts that will get better in your Christian faith. That's the reason why Christian churches are filled with a bunch of hypocrites, because everybody's jumping and just somehow swapping what they need to do instead of cutting off what they should not do. There's always something to reject and there's always something to embrace when it comes to the Christian faith. Too many Christians want it both ways. I want to embrace the wickedness of the world and my sanctified state in Christ. You can't do that. You have to reject certain things and accept certain things. That's how scripture works. That's how God works. That's how grace teaches us. In fact, the most miserable Christians are those that strive to still do it on their own apart from grace. Well, let me figure it out on my own. You ever met a Christian like that? They don't want anybody's help. They know it better than the pastor or anybody else in the church. I'll figure it out on my own. I don't need your help. And my favorite phrase from folks like that, well, we've been praying about it. I've been praying about it. We've got this figured out. Under which instruction? Your own? Or the text of Scripture? Because the truth is, God always places people in our lives that are there to direct and help us, particularly if we are his own. You see that throughout church history. Unfortunately, so many want to live apart from the grace of God in rejecting other godly men and women that want to input in their life. So much so that when a godly brother or sister comes up to them, they flat out reject it without even hearing it out. And unfortunately, most of us think that we're the ones that are right and everybody else is always wrong. If you've never been called out for something in your faith as being wrong in the way that you lived it out, then you obviously have a self-righteous attitude that you might need to repent of. Because every single one of us, a time or two or a dozens or hundreds or thousands, have been called out for certain things based on what Scripture says. And we need to listen and respond to that. Let go of our little ego that we have. Actually, it's probably, probably pretty big for some of us. There's a, hum a humility that needs to be there. And you and I need to be humble different, for different reasons than what Jesus did. Jesus never had any sin. You do. Your humility needs to come from the fact that you are a sinner and you need to repent. Not because you've arrived and everybody else owes you something. In fact, the idea here is having denied ungodliness and worldly passions. Because Paul is presenting this as, this is something you, are, you have already done. 
Not just the fact that you're doing it right now. This is something you have already done. Why? Because you came to saving faith in Christ and He turned your passions away from that. We should live with discretion, righteously, and godly. Believer, do you live with that? Do you live with discretion? The wicked life should be put behind us to pursue the godly one. You can't pursue the godly one while trying to hold on to the the wicked one. You can't. Which is why some of us need to make harder decisions in life. Like, who do we spend time with outside the church? It's going to sound like a very brutal statement to make right now, but I'm making this because I really do care what the text says, not because I have something to present here. If people from outside the church are influencing you more than people in the church, you may have a problem in your perception of what godliness is before God. What's really heartbreaking is that you have brothers and sisters that think the world will give them better advice about their faith. And it it turns into this weird thing that happens in our head. Well, you know, they're just more loving and accepting than my brother or sister at church. Maybe the brother or sister is actually a tool that God's using to tell you, hey, you're wrong. Maybe you need to own it. Maybe the brother or sister actually wants what's best for you because God wants that. Maybe the world just wants to pull you in with them and they think that you're going to literally just cater right away. And unfortunately, Satan realizes a lot of us are easy targets in the world. It doesn't take much for us to be convinced outside the faith. Which is one of the reasons why it's very heartbreaking for me as a pastor when I see Christians that don't have enough discernment to go, I'm reading this author and I'm accepting everything they blindly say. Just accepting it at face value without ever doing any research, homework, or reading through what they really believe. Too many in the faith want both the wicked and the righteous to give input into their life. And only one should be dominant. The truth is, the wicked will only lead you back to that. Look at how many proclaim the name of Christ that do so with little regard to a separated life from the world. Is there enough of a difference for you with other people that you know are not Christians that they can go, you know what, you really are that different? Like, you really have a hard line on some things that you don't cross. Or are you too like a chameleon sometimes? Changing as much as you can with whoever you're around. Being taught by grace is essentially to take the things of God seriously. They're not a joke. What's really sad is a lot of Christians find the Christian life to be a joke. What they don't realize is they themselves are the joke, and the world is watching. They're the ones They don't take God seriously. And they're making a mockery of their faith to everybody else. Spurgeon comments on this point with a balanced response to the one who has legalistic tendencies in the church. He says this, Taken together, we see that the fear of the legalist, that preaching grace produces Christians indifferent to obedience, is unfounded. Grace teaches us obedience. Wherever the grace of God comes effectually, it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. 
It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler to diligence. And it sobers the wanton mind, which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. Don't believe for a moment that you need to impose something else outside the Bible to live a godly life. God's given you all the tools necessary. Grace will teach you plenty that your own legalism and my legalism will not. You can't impose things on the Bible that are not there and say, God said that. Because now you're speaking on his behalf. And God is just as angered by you adding to his word as he is from taking away from it. And we like, to, we like to struggle between each other about, well, this person, they add to the Bible. Well, this person takes away from the Bible. God does not like either. In fact, he despises them both. In the present age. Amazing statement. Grace works whatever the culture is. Doesn't matter what time frame you live in. Whether it was back then or today, grace works the same. It gives us what we need to battle whatever cultural context we live in. It doesn't matter what the current culture is celebrating. Grace teaches us to live a disciplined life from the bondage of sin. Believer, you have tools the world does not have in battling your sin. They're readily available to you and me. It's still a miracle to this day that I look back and see that I am where I am today. I still can't believe I'm doing what I'm doing. Still can't believe God's done so many things in my life. Still don't, can't even fathom what my life would have turned out had it not been God's grace. Grace continues to teach us. And one of the most incredible ways it teaches us is in a person who will one day be one that we see in glory. That is the face of Jesus. Number three. Grace motivates, verses 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing you will one day see Christ appear once again to take away his bride should be the motivation that you and I have. Paul is telling them to look forward to this day. He's not saying, hey, look out for the Antichrist. You're looking to meet him. All this other stuff is secondary, church. It doesn't matter. I know you're worried about the money. I get it. The economies are collapsing around the world. I get it. Your eyes are to look up. Because you have Jesus that's awaiting. And he's ready to take his bride away. And that's what you should be looking for. We're stuck in the here and now too much. We're so worried about the everyday. I fall for the same trap you do. The motivation is his return, not your escape from this world. Motivations matter. 
Your motivation for the rapture is essentially just Jesus, you taking out of your problems. You've missed the point. After all, it's the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. His taking away the bride. Where the groom takes the bride away. He's going to take his bride home with him. The motivation should be living a disciplined life as a bride would waiting for her soon-to-be husband. Your motivations let me escape this life because it's too miserable and media's driving me crazy. It's not the right motivation. You know what your motivation should be? I can't wait to see Jesus. That's what your motivation should be. All of us remember if we married our spouse with this anticipation, the excitement before we got to that wedding day. What's really sad for many of us is just as we were excited early on many times in our marriage, that passion sometimes goes down. It goes back up, goes down, does it not? What happens to our faith in Christ? So many of us, when we come to saving faith, it's so precious to us. It means the world to us that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus has spared us of divine wrath, when it comes to thinking of him, we don't have anywhere near the excitement that a new believer has many times. For those of us that have gotten so mature, Jesus is not even that exciting many times. We're more excited about our cup of coffee in the morning, as sad as we are. We're more excited about the things we get in this life. Like I said, it's common grace, more than saving grace, that motivates many of us. Well, I just want better results in my life. You can get better results in your life. But your results in this life should pale in comparison to what you're looking forward to one day. This is why when seeing Jesus as your motivation, the petty arguments you have with people kind of don't matter as much. You just let it go a lot easier. You don't hold on to stuff as much. Like, hey, you know what? God's going to take care of that. There's no reason to argue with this person over this. It just isn't. I'll work it out as best as I can, but I'm not going to hold it over them. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians, they live with bitterness that they don't even realize or see. It's eating them, and it's been eating them for years. Frankly, it's swallowed them at this point. They don't even know how to get out of that cave. You see, when grace, which shows you the picture of Christ, motivates you, then the money problems that you have change. You start seeing things differently. You realize that this money that God's given you has been given to you as a steward now of his. You no longer see it as just a means of survival. You see it as a means of grace that God's given to you to take care of for him. And one day when, you re- when Christ returns, you have to give an account before him on how you spent your money too, by the way. I think a lot of people forget that. You're not just going to give an account for how you spent time with people and whether you did what God called you to. He's going to ask you to give an account even over your money that you've spent and how you've spent it. How you give of yourselves will be different if Jesus is your motivation. You're going to be a lot more willing to put up with stuff with people. 
if Jesus is your motivation. Because you're going to remember every single time what Jesus did through grace for you. If your Savior could endure suffering and a cross, you can endure that comment on Facebook. Really pretty petty. You really shouldn't have gotten so worked up over that. It's not a big deal. And side note, that's not persecution. How much time you spend on what you care about won't matter when Jesus becomes a priority. Think about it for a moment. What are the things that you really enjoy in this life that frankly have nothing to do with Jesus in them? Like, he doesn't even fall on the radar when you're thinking about him. When, when, when you're parenting your kids, is Jesus in that with you? When you're, when you're going to hang out with friends, is, is there a gospel mentality that you're having? Like, hey, I'm hanging out with ungodly people that need the Lord. Hey, I've got, I've got this extra money that God's given me, and I'm going to give to this with the desire that God uses it for his glory. All of those things that we care so much about won't matter at the end of the day. I want you to picture for a moment that you're the bride of Christ and Jesus returns to take you home and you have this stunning revelation right then and there. I wasn't ready. I didn't do anything to get ready for him. He didn't matter all that much to me. Yet he loved me. He cared about me. He sacrificed for me. For me, I didn't, I didn't care. Oh, I told everybody I cared about what he did for me, but you could never see it in my life. All you saw is the bitterness and anger and frustrations I had with everybody in the world and blaming everybody else for my misery when I never really fell in love with my Savior. What a heartbreaking situation. Jeremy Camp really captures this thought well in his song, There Will Be a Day. And I'll only read the first verse in chorus, but I encourage you to listen to the whole song. Here's what it says. I try to hold on to this world with everything I have, but I feel the weight of what it brings and the hurt that tries to grab. The many trials that seem to never end, his word declares this truth, that we will enter in this rest with wonders anew. But I hold on to this hope and the promise that he brings, that there will be a place with no more suffering. There will be a day with no more tears, no more pain, and no more fears. There will be a day when the burdens of this place will be no more, we'll see Jesus face to face. But until that day, we'll hold on to you always. What a glorious truth. What a glorious truth that one day we will see Christ face to face and all the things in this world that we really cared so much about really won't matter all that much. It just won't. Believer, don't you want it to be worth it to see Jesus on your end that you actually cared enough to show him that you cared? You've been redeemed eternally. There's nothing that can take that away if you're in Christ's hands. 
Is that what you are motivated by? By a Savior who gave himself for you. It's unfortunate that many times we do things for others that have done something for us and we neglect the one that paid the ultimate price. He redeemed you, paid the debt that you owed for your sin before a holy God. He didn't redeem you so you could live like the rest of the world. He did that so you would be redeemed from every lawless deed. Jesus didn't redeem you so you could struggle endlessly as you did before coming to saving faith. Which is why that isn't something that Christians should be okay with. Or the church for that matter. Oh, God loves you the way you are. You stay just as you are. Don't worry about changing anything. You're perfect the way you are. In your sinless state, you're not. You're righteous before God because of Christ, but that also means that that life that you are now are to live is to please Him. He came to free you from the very things that still have a grip in your life. Things that you think you can never give up, grace can still free you from. I love how F.B. Meyer put this. And we are therefore taught that the death of Jesus was intended not for our forgiveness and justification merely, but for our sanctification and our deliverance from the power of all our besetting sins. Grace is not just there for the beginning, it's throughout the whole process. It isn't as if God gives you grace the moment you believe and you're all left on your own and then you're getting to glory and grace takes over again. It starts and works in your life and finishes for eternity. To purify for himself his own special people. You are redeemed for him, not for yourself or others. So stop trying to please everybody else. You're to please Him. If your first priority is to make sure people think well of you, you've got the wrong priority. If Jesus is your motivation, then what He says should matter. Your better you, by the way, believer, is found in Him, not in yourself. Everybody's all like, believe in yourself. You can do it. You really can't. I hate to break it to you. If you've watched who you really are, you can't. It's all him, will always be him, from now to eternity. Why do you look for it in others, though? Why do we look for that in others? Why do we look for everyone else's approval but his? Why is it that we're like, no, I don't fear any person's opinion. I'm my own self-made man or whatever, right? Like, I'm, I'm all about me. Why isn't it about Jesus? Why isn't it about him? Why do his priorities not matter to you and I? You're his possession, believer. Do you know that? He owns you. Might be hard for you to fathom, but God owns you from a universal standpoint as God that holds this universe into being, speaks into being. Everything exists by the power of Christ. 
And he's essentially owing you as Savior and Lord. You're his possession. Specially chosen by him. I want you to pause for a moment and realize that the ugly you, the one that had nothing to offer grace, God said, you're mine. I love you. You're mine. Jesus died on your behalf. That's another reason why grace is amazing. So undeserved. Which is one of the reasons why I always love the text that Paul says, God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God didn't go throughout the world and try to only find the best people he could find. He chose the foolish of this world. Yes, we come from every cultural background you can imagine. Of every tribe and tongue. That's what God's calling. But he didn't do it based on your IQ. He didn't do it based on what you could offer him. It's his grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. Poured out for man who doesn't deserve it. With all his ugliness and sin. This is to have a passion with a zeal to do what he would want. That's what he's called you to, believer, is to not just sit idly by and not live for him. But to be passionate about good works, to be passionate about the things that he cares for. Well, I don't want to say too much. You might rock some things with people. I don't want to say anything. Is Jesus more important or everybody else? The motivation is not what you can get from him, but rather what he's already done for you. Let me repeat that. The motivation is not what you can get from him, believer, but what he's already done for you. It's already settled. Heaven's sealed. It's yours in Christ. What are you living like a failure for? Oh, right, you're relying on yourself again. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's not grace that's messed up. You are. Good works are deeds done for God by the enablement of the Spirit. We are not saved by good works. We are called to live good works out. That is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not done by you and I. Because every work that we do apart from the Holy Spirit is not a good work, by the way. Because the qualifier has to be God himself. If you realize that, good works can be helping a loved one in need by the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, working in you and saying, hey, you know what, I need you to reach out to that person. They really need you right now. It could be loving your spouse as Christ commands, brothers. Are we sacrificial? Are we doing it the way Jesus said to do it? Are we really taking our cue from him? Or are we comparing ourselves to other guys and going, well, I'm doing a little better than that guy. Not the right standard. What about raising your kids for Christ? Is there a priority in that? Do you view your children as a gift that God's given you that now invest in to give back to him for his glory? 
or your kid's going to kind of just do the image that you have for them. I want them to be successful in this area. I want them to do this. Or is there a greater picture in mind? Is there a greater calling that you're understanding? All the things that grace motivates you and I to do, we ought to do for him. And it could be random things this next week that you're not even considering, and God goes, I want you to do that. Based on something you've read, something someone mentioned, you start praying for them, and you realize, you know what, God wants me to do that. I love how this chapter ends before Paul goes into more reminders. Verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Essentially what Paul's telling Titus, you say it like it is. Don't mince words. Tell them what they need to hear. And church, I'm trying to tell you what Scripture says here clearly. We are all called to this. We are all called to do what grace has taught us. And maybe those lessons we need to relearn at times. But we need to pay attention. It doesn't matter if it's not received well. These are things that are important in the local church. Which is one of the reasons why church, God will work on all of us differently and take us down different paths at times and bring us back to where we need to be. Because grace still works even in, in the sinful things that we still do. Because God still pulls and brings us back to himself. So in conclusion, how is grace working in your life? How is grace working in your life? Maybe you're finding this whole thing as like nice and sweet, just really doesn't concern me. I mean, it's nice that you guys believe in this grace stuff. Sounds pretty neat, you know. Sovereign Grace Church, part of your church building. Maybe it doesn't matter to you. You don't need Christ. At least that's what you assume. Can I encourage you to look in the face of Christ and see a Savior who laid his life down for his own that he came to save? We needed saving. We weren't fine on our own. We were dead spiritually. Sinful. You're standing apart from Christ is a very dangerous place to be if you don't know him. Very dangerous. Maybe you've seen grace work in your life. You appreciated the gospel message when it reached out to you, but lately it's been a difficult walk. You just haven't really appreciated all that much what God's done for you. In fact, you've kind of just gotten used to it. So much so that all you see in grace is common grace. You don't even see saving grace much. You've been ignoring what God's been trying to teach you through his word. And if you do read the word, it's just kind of, let me do it because I need to do it. You don't pause and see and think. You'd rather do it on your own, apart from the local church community. You've got it more figured out than everybody else. Dangerous place to be. The beauty of grace is that you can still learn the lessons needed while you have life. Brother or sister, if you're walking away from God, realize that God is going to take, do whatever it takes to bring you back to himself. And should that be, as we go over every time with the Lord's Supper, should it be taking casually the things that you ought to be serious about, realize that it may stop at termination in this life. 
And that's actually love, by the way. I know the world will not think that. Maybe that warning from a brother or sister that cares for you is God's grace trying to help you before it's too late. And the consequences are a lot more severe for you and your family. Those of us that have walked with God for any length of time see the value of godly men and women in our lives that God has sent our way that have come along and said, you know what, brother, sister, here's, here's something you really need to see. You're really, you're really missing it right here based on what Scripture says. I'm not, I'm not doing this to judge you. I'm trying to tell you this is going to hurt your family if you keep going down this path. This is going to hurt you, sister. All these things online that you're letting infiltrate your life, they're really hurting your relationship at home. You need more of God's word than other people's opinions. What may be the greatest lesson to be learned is what motivates you and me. Looking forward to the meetup with Christ should be what motivates us most, church. Seeing Jesus face to face should matter most to us. Is excitement of a child that can't wait to see what his father, when he's coming home, what they've done for him. You ever have your kids do that? You're coming home and your child can't wait to show you what they've done. Hey, Dad, look at what I did. But they gave their best effort to show you something. Unfortunately, for many of us as Christians, we don't give that. We don't seek to please our Heavenly Father with that kind of tenacity in our life. That we can't wait to see Him and show Him what we've done on His behalf. May we learn the lessons of grace and grow in our love for Him.